0: Beautiful.
1: Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 14, 28 through 30. If you would like to join me in turning to that, Matthew 14, verses 28 through 30. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus, but seeing the wind, he became afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. All right. Good morning, everyone once again happy sabbath big thank you to all of you who have participated in the service thank you so much for the special music and um, it's always a delight to see our young people uh, participating so thank you for that and Elise, taking care of song service thank you so much for all of your efforts um Our last uh, sermon together was, as you can see, this is part two of the Church Militant part two. Last time we were talking about, uh, obviously it was part one, we went through a story of Israel in Numbers, and and the premise of my sermon remains the same. I had told you about this uh, group that I had been exposed to who were an offshoot branch of Adventism. And, um, they, uh, when I first came into the church, this is 14 years ago now, uh, I was baptized February 27th of 2010. So I just, just went over 14 years. And, uh, so as I was kind of going through the talking points in my mind of this offshoot branch that I had encountered when I was living in Central America, I, uh, uh, the Lord kind of brought me on this journey where I was uh, going through their talking points, and this church spent all of its time, as they were, we were discussing various things, um, all of its time pointing out and focusing on the errors of the Adventist church and why it was fallen. And they would point out lifestyle issues and how the people didn't uh, dress to the right standards, how they didn't eat up to the right standard and how they, uh, there was just this long kind of laundry list of wrongs that they kept and that they continuously pointed out. And so uh, after a couple of years of of wrestling with this, I, I wrote the sermon that we went through last time together where we went through the book of Numbers and we saw how Israel repeatedly failed God. But somehow God still saw them as righteous, and we concluded that because Christ was with them, and that His righteousness covered them, that's how God could see them as being righteous. And we we discovered that uh, God's church, God's people, the church militant, is in this battle, is in the battle, uh, the great controversy. We're seeking to do good. We're seeking to do the right thing. But sometimes we slip. Sometimes we fall. Sometimes we fail. And that's why we very much need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We can't depend on ourselves because we will fail in our uh, carnal nature, in our, sorry, in this earthly existence. There's tripping hazards everywhere. There are, there's ice. There are uh, things that we fall on in this sinful world, um, proverbial, you know, uh, things that we easily, sins that easily beset us at times. And uh, we very much need the righteousness of Christ. And um, so I concluded after a certain period of time, I said, boy, these people are more so exhibiting the characteristics of our accuser because they continuously are pointing the finger and looking for sins in people's lives. And uh, after I saw kind of the nature of the accuser versus the nature or the character of Christ. I was able to make my conclusion as to what I was dealing with on a spiritual level. So let's go ahead and pray together, and we'll get into our sermon for today. This is part two. It's a continuation of what we were talking about last time. Kind Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the Sabbath day, this opportunity to be together to study your word, this opportunity to learn more about you, this opportunity to... Um, lift up our burdens and our praises and our prayer requests and, and um, just to be able to worship corporately, collectively together. Um, and we just pray that as we are opening your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would please be with us, that you would guide us into all truth and that you would help us to reflect your character more fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Over and over again in our story, last time in the book of Numbers, the people failed and fell short of the glory of God. We read the stories from Numbers eleven all the way through Numbers twenty-three, and God spoke regarding Israel. He said, "I have not seen wickedness in them, nor have I seen iniquity among them." Uh, and it was it was a it's a it's kind of a bit of a shock when you see their history, uh, and and it the. The prophet Michael, Micah refers us to that story so that we can understand the righteousness of God. And what we understand about the righteousness of God from that story is it's completely independent of human merit. Those human beings did not merit that pronouncement that was placed upon them. It was because of the righteousness of God that that pronouncement was placed upon them. Today, um, I'm going to be kind of sorting out, going through a couple of stories with you, two main stories where we're discussing and looking at the character of Christ and how he interacted with people versus this accusatory spirit that I was dealing with among this group. So our first story comes from our scripture reading that Amy read for us in Matthew chapter 14. So we can just go there. Matthew chapter 14. And it's going to help us to see the character, the compassion of Jesus toward human beings when they fail and when they fall versus how a Pharisee or how uh, this particular group was behaving toward people who they perceived to be in a fallen state. Uh, this is Matthew 14. This is the story of Peter walking on the water. Just before this story, we actually read about Jesus having compassion on a multitude of five thousand men. Um, not the Bible specifically says there were numbered about five thousand men, not including women and children, and. Um, Theologians surmise or guess that there was probably more like fifteen to twenty thousand people. So Jesus has just fed those he, because of his compassion, his love for human beings, he's just fed this large group of people, and then we see the story of Jesus walking on the sea. So let's um, we'll begin in Matthew fourteen. Let's begin uh, probably verse twenty two. We'll start there. We'll just read through the story together. It's not very long. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And when he sent the multitudes away, and when he had, while he sent the multitudes away, verse 23, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out for fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. Don't be afraid. It's I. Do not be afraid. Kind of like when the... um, it reminds me of the story of when the angels brought glad tidings of great joy about the announcement of Jesus, and the shepherds were terrified, and they said, no, don't be afraid. We have tidings of great news for you. Good news, good tidings, glad tidings of great joy. And Jesus doesn't want us to be afraid here either, or his, his disciples in this moment, he says, be of good cheer, don't be afraid, it's me, Twenty eight. And Peter, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had got, come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand And caught him and said to him, Oh you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. I love this story. It demonstrates it demonstrates God's Jesus' compassion for fallen human beings. Uh, I always used to use, when I was a Bible worker, I used this text all the time when it came to salvation. That when, as soon as we cry out to Jesus, the Bible says he, he didn't wait because he, he did, there was no waiting involved. He cried out, Lord, save me, those words. And when Jesus hears those words, the response is immediate. He reaches out to save. That's the heart or the compassion of Jesus to those who are in a lost state. It's immediate. It's automatic, you could say. We see. And in this story, I look at Peter as a representative of all of us who want to do God's will. We we want to come to him. We, we want to move forward in whatever he may be asking us to do, but sometimes we fall. Sometimes the Bible tells us that Peter became, uh, when he saw the circumstances around him, he saw the storm, he took his eyes off Jesus, and the Bible says that he immediately began to sink. So he wanted to do the right thing. And for a moment, he was. As long as he kept his eyes on Christ, he was doing okay. But eventually, when he saw the wind was boisterous, the Bible says he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. His intentions were pure, but perhaps they became impure at some point in time. Perhaps He thought more highly of himself than he ought. Who knows what was going through his mind? But we see that his desire and his intention was pure to begin with. This verse shows Christ's spirit. It shows his attitude toward humanity, toward those who have fallen, toward those who have maybe succumbed to some sin in their life. And when we cry out, Lord, save me, the answer is immediate. Jesus does rebuke him, however. It's a soft rebuke. It's, it's a question. It's, uh, you know, wh- you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt me? I haven't given you any reason to doubt me. And so the rebuke is soft. Jesus doesn't seek to just, like human beings, just beat us while we're down. Like we, we tend to do that to each other. We're like chickens in that way. Um... For whatever reason in our sinful fallen nature if you ever if you've ever uh, we have this issue at our house right now where somebody got hurt and so all the rest are just beating her up all the time and so you got to separate them so uh, we're, that's where and I think of human beings oftentimes we're the same way where we uh, like to kick each other when we're down in our fallen state in our carnal nature Jesus doesn't do that he doesn't give us that example at all that that's how he operates and so that's, uh, when, I, when I think about this other system pointing out the errors all the time, the Spirit of Christ is one that comes alongside. The Spirit of Christ is one who comes to the aid of somebody who is is, is failed, is maybe overtaken in a fault. Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 6, if you see one of your brethren overtaken in a fault... You who are spiritual, restore such a one. That is the spirit of Christ. It's not to stand back, point the finger, and say, aha, like like a Pharisaical mindset. It's one thing, you know, the Pharisees had a mind to show and point out sin, which having an understanding of what sin is, is a good thing. It's going to protect you you're going to be able to avoid it right but we have to be able to provide people with a remedy for the problem not just point out the problem and be condemning and be uh kind of overbearing or i can't remember condescending that's the word that i'm looking for and not be condescending we need to come alongside because that's the example that jesus shows us even think about the big picture if anybody had a right to say aha you're sinful And I'm not going to engage with you. I'm not going to interact with you. Jesus is the only being who had that right or that prerogative, and he didn't do that. He comes to this sinful planet. He comes alongside to save. He's not standoffish. He immediately responds to the problem. And when somebody cries out to him for help, immediately there is a response. That's the spirit of Christ versus the opposing spirit that we find ourselves dealing with, which is more of an accusatory, or we're dealing with the spirit of our accuser. The Bible tells us he stands to accuse us before the throne of God. We serve a very compassionate Savior. We serve, whenever we cry out to him, the Bible says that he responds, he doesn't make us do acts of penance first. No, he saves us and then and in a response to the saving relationship that we have, we, we find ourselves wanting to do his will. When we experience his mercy in our own lives, we find ourselves just naturally wanting to do his will. We see a heart of compassion for humanity in the life of Christ. I'm sure many of us can identify with Peter in this situation where we, we're happy to do what Jesus asked us to do, but perhaps somewhere along the way, we've fallen short or we've tripped or we've gotten overcome by fear or we've been overcome by anxiety or whatever the case may be. The example that Jesus gives to us is for one thing, Peter does give us an example, he knew who to turn back to right away, right? He knew that he could immediately turn back to Christ and Jesus would save him. And that needs to be our attitude as well. Whenever we find ourselves tripping, failing, falling, floundering, we need to turn back to the Savior. Whenever we see self rearing its ugly head again, that means we need to turn back to the Savior, that means we need to, uh, we, we confess and we say, Lord, please give me the grace that I need to repent, to turn away from this. Please help me in my life. Please save me. The stories of Peter, the story, the ongoing, I, the time would fail for me to show you all the compassionate acts of Jesus. Uh, uh, John said it best. He said, um, he said, not even the world could contain the books that should be written of all the things that I could tell you about Jesus and his compassionate works toward human beings. He said, I suppose the world could not even contain the books. That's a wonderful thing to be able to say. Um, sure, Peter expressed little faith. Faith is dependence on God, but he immediately demonstrated that he knew who could help him get out of his situation? Um, we often, in Christianity, especially historically, we, we set a great deal of emphasis on how, what our works contribute to what God has done. Um, in, in, in other churches, he would have had to do some acts of penance to get him out of, out of his situation, what good what could Peter have done in that like if we were to think okay we'll just leave him to himself maybe by his own works he can save himself what would have happened to him he would have drowned he would have died he would have never made it back to shore no matter where they were they were in a boisterous sea and that's what Christ came to save us from was an impossible situation on our part let's read another story where we see the mercy of Jesus demonstrated in this particular story, we see the attitude of Christ, and we also see the attitude of the accuser. We also see the attitude of uh, the opposing spirit, I'll say, that I saw in this church. Um, And you all know the story very well. It's John chapter 8. John chapter 8. This is a familiar story. I'm pointing out familiar stories for today. The church militant is full of people who want to do the right thing, but sometimes they find themselves falling short. We find ourselves failing. We find ourselves Tripping over the tripping hazards of this life, and we see Jesus picking us back up. Within Judaism at this point in time, especially in Jesus' life, they had developed a very legalistic mindset where they had made things to be sin that were not even sins. The thing that we're talking about in this story, we're very much dealing with an actual sin. A lot of times, the Pharisees would point at Jesus and point out his disciples saying, hey, look, your disciples are doing something that's not lawful, but it's a made-up law that they've created. It doesn't have anything to do with God's law, but they would still point the finger and accuse of sin. In this story, um, we're dealing with an actual sin, and let's see what Jesus does. John chapter 8, we're going to read 1 through 12. Yeah, let's begin in just in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came into the temple, again into the temple, and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. The Bible says this, they said, testing him. This whole thing is actually a trap. Maybe if you've read through the Gospels, you would know that they often tried to trap him. The whole situation is actually a creation, unfortunately. Because the law of Moses that they're referring to, both parties should be stoned. And so, the person who's involved is probably part of the facade. They set this up to trap Jesus. And so... Uh, neither, the man is somehow disappeared. And they bring out this probably very scantily clad woman directly from their trap. She's the centerpiece and she's actually a pawn in their game. And so Jesus understands this. He knows what's happening. Says this they did to test him, to see if they could find some way to accuse him. You see, because what happens is, and they've done this both multiple times throughout his life, if he condemns her and says, yes, she ought to be stoned, then they can run to the Romans and say, listen, this guy just is inciting the people to commit or uh, a capital punishment. And so then he can be condemned by the Romans. If he does not condemn her, then he can go to the Jewish people They can go to the Jewish people and say, he doesn't follow the law of Moses. And so he's caught, or they think that they have him caught. But Jesus doesn't respond. It says, Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. He doesn't respond at all. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. This whole thing is a trap. And I believe that we don't have it for sure written in the Bible there, But it's very possible, I can't remember if it's in the Desire of Ages or where I got this thought, that he was possibly writing out their sins in this story. And so that's why it says they were convicted by their own conscience. What we've done is itself a sin. So in their efforts to trap Jesus, they're causing multiple people to sin, and they are creating this elaborate plan to condemn him. And the Bible says that as he's riding on the ground, they become convicted and they leave. So it tells you there's more to this story than exactly what we're reading. Something is being planned and plotted there, and it might be so that they could accuse him. But I want us to notice what Jesus does. What is his spirit in this? What is he, there's a sin, there's a legitimate sin that's taken place. And they think that they have created the right scenario to be able to trap him. Jesus handles this vastly differently than I would have because he knows the plot. I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't, you know, I would have experienced the compassion with her, um, but I wouldn't, my nature, my carnal nature would not have been writing on the ground i would have said you did this and you did that and you i if i had the intel that he's got i would have been calling them out in front of the whole crowd that's my carnal nature speaking because there's a certain sense of indignation that you would feel but jesus didn't even do that to the accusers he was hoping in their heart of hearts that as he's writing this out that they would be convicted, and they actually were, and they actually responded to that conviction amazingly. So Jesus Christ, he, he knows what he's doing. And even in that situation, who knows how it was obviously salvational for her, but who knows how many of those might have made a decision for him at that moment. Like, we're not dealing with just some upstart young rabbi This guy knows more than we think he knows. He's got some intel from another source. And so we see the compassion of Jesus for her, but also for those who created the plot to trap him. They're trying to ruin his life. They're trying to ruin his ministry. I like how it even says in in the beginning of 8, now, early in the morning, he came to the t- again into the temple, and all the people came to him. The people wanted to hear from Jesus, and that's the part that drove the spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, crazy. is because he was gaining more influence than they had. And so Jesus, even understanding that, we see the compassion of our God. We see the compassion of Jesus. And we also see the opposing spirit. We see the one who stands to accuse, the one who's always seeking to point out fault, the one who is always, they didn't want to point out their own faults, but Jesus very quietly did somehow and got through to them, and the Holy Spirit got through to them. Jesus did not condone the sin, though, did he? No. He, he, he says, I'm not here to condemn you, but leave your life of sin. Go. As we've been studying through the book of Romans, we've been learning that that's God's God's whole thing, is he's trying to preserve us and save us from a life of sin. Our life isn't uh, isn't, uh, determined by the uh, occasional deed or misdeed, but the trajectory of our life, God is trying to Pull us heavenward, trying to pull us upward, trying to restore His image in all of us. And part of that image is His compassion for other people. That's what we're seeing in Jesus in both situations. We could say three. Think about the the feeding of the five thousand. The Bible says it was because of His compassion that He had for them. So not only do we want to learn the ability and have the ability to protect ourselves from sin, but we also, Jesus wants to restore in us his compassion for lost people. Not that we're standing to accuse, but we also want to provide the remedy that exists in Jesus. Okay, We don't want to just point out sin, we want to say, We will also want to introduce them to the sin-pardoning Savior. Yes, this is a fault. Yes, this is a flaw. Yes, this is a sin. But guess what? Praise be to God for his unspeakable gift in Jesus Christ. We don't want to adopt the spirit of the accuser. And it, it is very much alive and well in Christianity today. Just like it was with these Pharisees. Within our, the history of our church and many others, we have that same mentality of more so the pointing of the finger than the compassion of Christ. And it needs to be not the pointing of the finger, but we do have to have a recognition of sin, but we want more so to be able to introduce people to the sin-pardoning Savior so that he can transform their life. Not that we're putting it on ourselves, like Peter we don't want to put it on ourselves and create a human-centered religion where my works somehow contribute to my salvation. No, we need to have Christ's covering that we saw in Numbers uh, uh, Numbers 23 where this pronouncement is put upon them that God has not seen iniquity or wickedness in them because The Lord their God was with them and the shout of a king is among them. We need to have that covering in our life. We're just as dependent on that covering in our life when we first step into a relationship with Jesus and we don't know hardly anything as we do at the end of our life when we've figured out how to walk with him, when we've figured out how to respond to his spirit. And we've had this continual growth process where we're becoming more and more like him in our sanctified life, but we're just as dependent because there's still the occasional slip and trip and fall in which we're not intending to sin. Uh, Peter wasn't, didn't get up to do the bidding of Jesus intending to sin in that moment. He wanted to do the right thing. He wanted, to, he wanted to be with Jesus. And Jesus said, come to me. And so he began to do what Jesus asked him to do, but he lost sight of him. There's a lot of stories we could talk about Peter And also the compassion of Jesus. There's a lot of ways that we can see ourselves in the life of Israel, in the life of the disciples, where we can see our shortcomings and our failures, but we also want to look at and introduce people to the compassion of Jesus. I hope that in our effort, our desire to reflect the character of God, that compassion is on that list, that grace is on that list, that the desire to help people, usher people into a relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus, is on that list. Jesus told her to leave her life of sin. Don't continue to live this way. It's not not good for you as a human being. It's not good for your relationships. And your sin is going to separate you from God. There's nothing good about sin. Nothing. So leave your life of sin. And I'm happy to give you the power to do so. He said, Jesus says he's more willing to give us the Holy Spirit than we are to give good gifts to our children. And we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us overcome. We need the power of the Holy Spirit uh, for conviction. And we need that power to help us, to give us the gift of repentance. The church, the church Like Peter, like the disciples, we can think of so many other occasions in the Bible where Jesus' followers, his church, his apostles, his disciples, they did the wrong thing. Peter did the wrong thing, denying Christ as he's being killed, as he's going through his trial, he's denying Christ. But he still knew that he could turn back. Even after we see Peter struggling with, um, maybe not sin, but you recall the story where he was, was, when there were no Jews around, he would hang out with the Gentiles. But whenever there were Jews around, he would withdraw. So he still didn't have it all right, but he knew Jesus and Christ was covering him. He wasn't perfect at all at any point in time. We go back to the, we go back to the uh, sons of thunder. You remember James and John. And when Jesus was coming into Samaria, he was going toward Jerusalem, and he was coming into Samaria, and they went ahead to make provision for them. The Samaritans said, we don't want him here. Send him on his way. And so the sons of thunder said, are you going to thun- th- call down lightning on them like Elijah did? They had this spirit of indignation because they didn't accept Jesus. And Jesus says, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. The spirit that you're exhibiting right now is not of God. Okay? I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I came to save them. Even the Pharisees in our story, he wanted to save them too. It's hard for us... When, somebody's, when somebody is attacking us in some way to have that, we take, we take offense to it. We take personal offense if somebody's attacking us. But we also have to adopt the spirit, this idea that it's not about us, they're attacking Jesus. If you can just say that in your mind, they're not attacking me, they're ta- attacking Christ. They're not slamming the door in my face, they're slamming the door to what Jesus is offering to them when you understand it that way, it, it makes it a little bit easier to pray for people. Um, it's still difficult, and that's still something that we're all a work in progress of. But when you can recognize or say that they're not doing it to me, they're doing it to Christ, then you can, it makes it easier. I've found it make it somewhat easier to pray for people, to pray for my, quote, enemies. We sometimes do the wrong thing, but as God's children, we seek to make it right. We seek for forgiveness. We seek to do the right thing. We have the desire to do God's will. This is the church militant. We're in the fight. We want to do God's will, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we fail. But we always know who to turn back to. We always know that Christ will have compassion on us, and we want to share that that hope or that relationship with the people around us. We also want to have his spirit when it comes to sin in the lives of other people. In these two stories, we see Jesus reaching out. We see his compassion in both situations. We don't want to develop a pharisaical mindset in which we are quick to condemn or look down on others or won't associate with them. We want to have the spirit and nature of Christ. This other church, I'm telling you, after a couple of years of praying for discernment, I was able to see the big picture and who was on which side, who was on the right side, who was acting in the spirit of Christ and who was not. The problem is, for me anyway, is it fit into my natural carnal mind. I was already naturally a very critical person. So I felt like, hey, this is where I fit. <laughs> no. I had to pray for God to help me to overcome that. And I remember vividly, I can't remember if I heard, I, was, I think it was, I heard it in a sermon, and then I went and read it for myself on my lunch break. Isaiah 29, I think it's 20 or 21 let me see if I put it in here. Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah 29, 20, 21. Just for brevity, I'm just going to tell you the verse that stuck out to me. God tells, speaks in this situation. He said, all those who watch for iniquity will be cut off. And I was like, oh, so what I'm doing is not a good thing? All those who are watching for iniquity will be cut off. Because, again, it's not the spirit of Christ. You're, you're operating, or I was operating, in the spirit of the accuser. And so God hit me, you know, we've all had that experience where the proverbial spiritual two-by-four, where you just get that boom right here, and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm operating in the wrong spirit. I'm not ref- reflecting the character of Christ. I'm not seeking to help anybody. I'm just seeking to see myself as more spiritual than they are. And I want to be standoffish. And, and, and as I said last time, if anybody had that right, it was Christ. None of us do. None of us have. We've all fallen in sin. We're all in the, this cesspool of a world. And all I could say from that mindset, from when I got that, Scripture, when that scripture hit me, all I could say was, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. I don't know what I'm doing. This is a natural thing that was built into me. I need your help. All we can do in our moments of sin, weakness, conviction is say, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. That's all we can do is turn back to our Savior. And we serve a very compassionate Savior. I'm going to tell you a quick story, and then we're going to close. I'm going to tell you a quick story and read a quote, and then I'm going to close. There's a story. I don't remember the exact details. I think it's true. I'm pretty sure it's a true story. There was this man, and I'm just making it up. I don't remember the exact details details of whose house it was at whether it was at a camp for some reason part of my mind thinks this was taking place at a camp a campsite area not campsite but a camp ground of some sort there had been some this man was there he had his family it was some sort of family outing and or think of maybe there's a lot of people there maybe it was uh a family reunion type situation, okay? And he's there, he's got several children, one of which is a two-year-old girl. She's very small, but she's very happily running around the, the grounds, okay? Just in a carefree environment. And as she's just there, everybody's enjoying the time, she's running around, and the father just sees her disappear. She was running along and she disappeared into a hole in the ground. And they all ran over to see what, where she went. And when they realized what had happened is there had been some work done on the sewage system at this place, and somebody forgot to slide. And it was a small hole, small enough for a two-year-old to slide down, but Dad obviously could not fit. And so he sees this happen and he's running and he's on the ground as deep as he can reach into what's in a sewage tank. He's feeling around, they're screaming, mom is crying, they don't know what to do. But time is of the essence because she can't breathe in this tank because they had been doing work on it and it was apparently full. And so as this man is reaching through the tank, Of all the ingredients that make up this tank, okay, from this camp, from wherever they were at, he's reaching, and as the minutes are going by, people are crying, people are weeping, they're calling the police. He's just doing all that he can, trying to fit closer, deeper into the hole, and at some point in time, he feels a little hand, and he pulls the little girl out of the tank, saving her life. And she's covered in, you know what, in this tank. And the story very much reflects what God has done for human beings. The difference is, is Jesus jumped into our tank, our cesspool, to show us how to live, to save us, to, to grant us forgiveness. He jumped head, he jumped in and interacted in the tank, okay? We're all stuck in the circumstances. And when we develop a pharisaical mindset, all we're, we're all in this tank together looking down and we're all, we're all in the same, got the same problem. But Jesus condescends. His compassion would not allow him to say, no, that's too much for me. I'm not going to jump in there to save them. I'm a little too holy for that. That's not what he did. We see the love of God. We see in this story the love of this father for his child, that he was going to do all that he could in that immediate moment to save her life, which is what God did for us in sending his son to save us. The life, I'm going to read you this quote from Fundamentals of Christian Education. The life of Christ was a life charged with a divine message of the love of God. And he longed intensely to impart this love to others in rich measure. Compassion beamed from his countenance and his conduct was characterized by grace, humility, truth, and love. Every member of his church militant, must manifest these same qualities if they would join the church triumphant at last. We must have the Spirit of Christ if we want to be his children. We just read in Romans this last week, if we don't have the Spirit of God, we are not of him. How do we get it What did Peter do? We cry out, Lord, help me. And he is more willing to help us than we are to even give good gifts to our own children. Lord, save me. Lord, help me. I hope that we can see ourselves for who we are. And apart from Christ, we're no better than anyone else on this sinful planet. I hope that the compassion, love, and grace of our God would be seen in us rather than an accusatory or condemning spirit. I hope that we can be a part of the loud voice of preaching the everlasting good news, the everlasting gospel of a sin-pardoning Savior. Introducing people to this compassionate, sin-pardoning Savior. Is your desire to, to reflect the attributes of Christ in your life? Beloved, that's our desire as the church militant. And whenever you find yourself failing or tripping or falling short, do what Peter did. Cry out to God and say, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Lord, I want to do your will. And may we share the grace and mercy that we receive with the people around us. Is that your desire today? Let's pray together. Kind Father in heaven, Lord, we desperately need you in our lives. We need your grace. We need your covering. I'm so thankful that it's not, our salvation is not based on the the, the occasional good deed or misdeed, but based on the merits of Christ and the trajectory of our lives. That this isn't an on-again, off-again relationship, but that you're always there alongside, helping, encouraging, showing compassion, but also bidding us to turn away, to repent from a life of sin. Please help us to that end, we pray, and help us to share this love and grace and compassion with the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.